Well, good morning again. Um, we are so, so happy that you are here with us this morning. Um, I don't know about you, but it's already been a really, really good morning. Uh, worshiping uh, in, through music and then uh, worshiping through uh, dedication. And I just want to let you know that as someone who works here, as a dad whose kids um, go here, we value families. And we value um, not just you as parents, but we value us as parents in supporting each other and helping each other ultimately to raise kids that would love Jesus and go change the world because Jesus has changed them. And so we want you to know that that is our heart here. Uh, and that is what, um, in some ways, really gets us up in the morning. And so uh, we're so happy uh, to be here uh, with you uh, this morning. Would you pray with me as we get started with our sermon this morning? Jesus, thank you so much that you have loved us and that you have cared for us. God, I thank you for each face that was represented on this stage. God, we believe deeply that they are made in your image and that you have plans for them and that you have desires for them in life. And we would pray, God, that in all that we do as a church, not only would we support them, but we would support each other in us loving you with our whole heart because, God, we need each other. So bless our church and bless our time this morning. God, all the words that we would speak, God, would be words that honor you, would be words that are right and true because it is your word this morning that we preach from. And so we ask, God, all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, um, speaking of parenthood, uh, like most of us, I have a handful of titles in life. And one of the most treasured titles I have is as dad. I've only been a dad for seven or so years, but I have a number of dad memories. One of those um, such memories was in a, or at a hot summer day um, when at that point my four-year-old son uh, saw that there was a much older uh, neighborhood baseball game going on just right outside of our house. Barely uh, containing himself, he quickly found his cap and his baseball mitt that, of course, was far too big for his hand. But he took off with his mom outside, and he went around the fence to play baseball. Now, Max has really never met a stranger, and um, he wasn't going to be afraid of who he was going to run into uh, in this uh, game of baseball. He was going to make fast friends, and he was going to have a ball, literally. And as I watched from the upstairs window, his, his mom barely kept up with his little legs as he sped ahead down the length of our fence and into the big wide open space of a neighborhood common area where all the action happens. And standing in the shape of, the diamond, or of a diamond, those kids who were playing, those much older kids, briefly looked over and then quickly went back to their game, kind of shutting out the annoyance that was about to walk into their baseball game. And over the next three or four minutes, he tried his best. He tried to get the ball before it was hit off the bat. He tried to, to run the bases as the pitcher was still pitching. And he wandered around the diamond as the players tried to concentrate, breaking most every neighborhood baseball rule that there was. And it was clear in a very short time that this just wasn't going to work. Because you see, as hard as Max tried to play with the big kids in a semi-legitimate game of neighborhood baseball. It just wasn't going to happen. And it wasn't their fault, right? It really wasn't. 
But I'll never forget as my wife led him away from the common area and back down the length of the fence, but this time him walking back in total dejection because all he wanted to do was to fit in, to be accepted. And I'll admit, watching from that upstairs window, it broke my heart more than a little. And I might have even have choked up just a little bit. But among other things, it served that day as a powerful example of our universal desire, young or old, just simply to be accepted. And this morning, I want us to spend our time focusing on this idea of just how it is that we are accepted. Not by kids on a baseball field or even in the very adult culture around us, but rather by God himself, our most important audience. Last week we um, talked uh, about um, the, the, the mask that we wear. And we said that, that we wear the equivalent of these masks that attempts to really obscure the sin that lives inside of us. And we said that when we don't see the extent of our sin, we can't really see the extent of God's rescuing love to us. We looked at the first half of Romans 2 and said that Paul, the writer, was turning his attention to the church after chapter 1. We said that the mask of identity, the mask of contempt, and the mask of good deceived not only them, but even us into thinking that our sin isn't nearly as bad as it is, thereby minimizing our sin against God. But Paul finishes the rest of chapter 2, which is what we're talking about today, in much the same way he started it, calling out and condemning the hypocrisy and the misunderstanding of this early church to which he was writing. And as we read the rest of Romans 2, as we're about to do, we're going to see how it was that they were trying to find simple acceptance. And so let's read this morning in chapter 2, starting at verse 17 and going all the way through the end of the chapter to verse 29. Now you, says Paul, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children. Because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Verse 25, circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. 
Now a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code. For such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. And one of the things that I think we can see from this text this morning is that these followers of Jesus in this early church actually really longed to be accepted by God. But just through their own means of twisted justification. Their identification as a Jew with the the law as their moral torch in verses 17 17 through 20 really shows the the extent of their, their zeal. And while on one hand there is a there's a pureness and maybe even a goodness in this zeal and longing to be accepted by God. On the other hand, the means by which they thought they could gain acceptance wasn't right at all, as Paul explains in verse 29. But then Paul presses back on them in verses 21 through 23 on their ill-intentioned judgment of others and their ultimate hypocrisy. And as a result of these, of these actions and these attitudes, the worst possible thing happened. Unbelievers turned their back on God or kept their back turned on God because of the blown witness of these believers. And I think it's so important this morning that we try and learn the lesson of those believers and of this whole chapter by asking ourselves another very simple question. What makes us acceptable? How can we as people be justified before God? How can we be made right? And this morning I want us to look at three really broad categories where I believe that sometimes we try wrongly to find those answers. And those categories are this, our moralism, our religion, and finally ourselves. So let's look at the first one this morning, our moralism. The first way I believe that we try to make ourselves accepted by God is what we'll call this this idea of moralism. It's kind of a big word. It's an ism word, but it's a simple word. Moralism just simply means moral. Making good moral choices, following rules, not harming others, staying away from certain things and abstaining from others. And of course, there's, there's nothing wrong with this at all, right? It's, it's a really good thing. Moralism is a thing that we want. In fact, all of us who stood on this stage a moment ago desired that our kids live a moral life. All of you who represents a child, child or adult, wants your children to live a moral life. In fact, as a, an obedient follower of Jesus, we will necessarily live a moral life. So then what's the issue with morality? The issue is, like most things, when we make this thing, when we make morality an ultimate thing, when we think our good choices somehow give us standing with God, they become the thing we think that justifies us. And for the Roman church, we see Paul in verse 17 saying that they they rely on the law and they boast in God even. Now, mostly we would likely see these as good, moral people. They kept the law. They knew the law. They lived by the law, which is all fine. It's all actually really good, except 
that they made law-keeping their salvation, their means of acceptance. And this, this would blind them to their own hypocrisy in relying on this rule-keeping and not on Jesus. And in our world today, being moral, being good, is really the most common understanding of how it is that we can be accepted by God to those who are, who are open to God. For instance, when you go to Google and you start typing, how do I get to the autofill fill suggestion box is going to pop up. And one of the first suggestions is, it's going to suggest to you is, how do I get to heaven? Because it's a question that so many ask. And to, to get to heaven means that we need to be accepted by God, right? I mean, it is his place after all. So how do we, how do, we do it? Is it through our morality? Is it through our goodness? Many would say so. You just simply pull a person at Meyer and you're likely to hear, if I'm good enough, if my good outweighs my bad, then, then God will accept me. It's probably also a thing your kids think too. Between my experiences teaching kids and just simply having my own, one thing I do know is that kids maybe not born with, but man, they're almost born with this idea that, that heaven is gained and God's love is gotten by how good they are. And listen to this. They probably also think that, that same thing of your love too. And as parents this morning, we must be careful with that. We can't ever let our kids believe that our love as parents for them is conditioned upon their performance. As parents, we must keep reminding our kids and helping them to know that we love them not because of the good things they do, but because he is your son and she is your daughter. Let your love for your children be unconditional. Now, why would we draw such a hard line on that? Well, A, you're going to mess your kids up if you don't, if you don't love them unconditionally. But B, and more importantly, because that's the way that Jesus loves you. And as hard as we try, our goodness in life doesn't earn us God's acceptance. Again, don't get me wrong, moral goodness is a thing that we should strive for. And for the follower of Jesus, it is a giant part of the life of us, a believer. But it's as a response not as a means by which God will accept us. But secondly, our religion, our religion is another way that we try and earn acceptance from God. And while this one is, is kind of similar to morality, there are some really important differences. I think probably the most obvious one being that you can actually be really opposed to religion, opposed to God, and still be very moral. Ironically, you can even be very religious and not moral at all. But as, as Tim Keller points out, the audience that Paul was talking to here in chapter 2 are actually both. They're, they're moral and they're religious. But they won't find acceptance from God in either category or even both combined. And church, neither will we. 
A core part of, of um, the Jew was this practice of uh, circumcision that Paul talks about in verses 25 through 29. We were not going to get through this sermon by not talking about circumcision. This, this practice that was explicitly tied to their, not only their personhood, their jewelry, but their religion, which was one and the same. Now, I will spare both me and you a very detailed description of circumcision this morning, which if you like, you can Google, but you probably shouldn't. But Paul uses this as an example to help them understand that the, that the act of circumcision alone meant not much. Circumcision itself was a symbolic act that had clear implications when acted out for the Jewish people which was the covenant that they were making, the promise that they were committing to God. It was the idea of being cut off, don't think too hard about that, but a little hard, cut off from everyone else. Not only as a potential consequence for breaking that covenant, but also of a picture for a people set apart. Now, it was just completely happenstance that we're talking about circumcision on the day that we dedicated a bunch of babies. But, but for your sake, I won't take this, this idea of circumcision any further, though I could. But, but what's so important for us to grasp this morning is that there is an idea here that's so important. Because even in the motions that Christians go through today, if they're not careful, they can begin to rely on acts of worship. As what I'll call functional rescuers, as justifiers, as the thing that makes them accepted. Again, the scholar Tim Keller is really helpful here. He suggests that just for a moment, if you replace the word circumcision in really any of the verses in 25 through 29 with a word like church membership or baptism even or serving or another church word, you get a little more understanding of what Paul is saying. So, for instance, when you say baptism has value when you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you have not been baptized. Now, replacing words in the Bible is not something that we're going to do normally, but this helps us to see, in this case, the place of mere external actions. These things are not a means unto themselves, but instead they are the thing you do in response to what Jesus has already done for you. And try as we might, our religious, even our religious actions cannot hold the weight of our acceptance before God. And again, don't mishear me, please. Church membership Baptism, which we're going to experience here in a couple minutes, and serving are all extremely important things that we actually want you to do. And we should not hold them as less, of, as less important, but we should put them in the right order. Because these things are responses to already being accepted, not the means by which you are accepted. And when we understand that, this idea, being baptized, serving, joining a church, and a dozen other things you can do in this building are all the more meaningful because it comes not as an obligation, but as a response to something 
that has happened inside of you. So then understanding that the religion of Christianity, the things we do that people see, are not the things that rescue us. They're not the things that make us acceptable. Instead, they're the things we do because we have been rescued, because we have been accepted. Thirdly, and maybe most truthfully, we often believe that we, ourselves, can make us acceptable. On the surface, this is certainly the most egocentric of the three, but in some ways, it's also the most natural and, I don't know, maybe even innocent. Because we always say, you know, if you, if you want something done, what do we say? You gotta do it yourselves, right? And while sometimes there is lots of truth in that, I've said it a lot of times myself, but when it comes to what makes us acceptable, when it comes to how God accepts us, our own abilities can't do that either. We live in a culture of, it's another ism word, of individualism that makes this thinking natural, that says, ah, rub some dirt on it, tough it out, find your own way, make it happen. And again, I'm not saying these are all bad things. They have good places. But in this case, they just simply don't square with the system of acceptance and justification that God has created for us. And I think that one of the the hardest biblical truths to accept about ourselves is that our separation from God not only is our fault, but that there's simply nothing we can do about it in ourselves. No amount of, of ingenuity, no Hollywood plot twist, no Herculean human effort can change what is unchangeable. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot make us acceptable to God. One of the things that I've always found so interesting is that when I explain this concept, really, of the gospel, a piece of this as the gospel, to kids, just as a simple teacher, I usually start by using the analogy of a picture that I'm sure you've seen some version of before. But in this picture, there are, uh, there are two sides that are separated by, um, for the lack of a more dramatic word, a, a chasm. And on, on one side, you have, you have us, you have humanity. And on the other side, you have God. And the chasm itself represents the divide between who we are and who God is. And that divide, of course, is caused by our sin. But when I draw this simple picture for kids, and I do a lot, interestingly, the thing that always trips them up is why they just can't simply get across. Why they can't jump or walk around or climb down or fly over. I've heard them all. And no matter how far apart I draw the sides, no matter how wide the board is, there is always a hesitation or an idea or a way for us to very much on our own, through some piece of ingenuity, bridge that divide. Now, for the skeptical among us, I understand kids are very concrete in their learning. So it's not surprising that they would, they would offer concrete observations. But anecdotally, I've done this enough 
to see that there is something else behind their observations. That there is an almost intrinsic belief that there must be a way to bridge that gap. And from our side, And it's always far quieter when I begin to explain to them that God himself bridged that gap from his side. Because you see, even our kids have the thought that we can find a way to fix our problem, that we can be accepted by our ability to come up with a way that fixes it all. But church, if the Bible teaches us anything, it is that we do not have the ability to fix what is broken whether through being good, being religious, or just simply trying to find a way to make it right. Maybe you are here this morning and you've understood what I said, but actually you don't buy any of this separation and sin stuff. Maybe your belief system doesn't support the facts as the Bible presents them. It's okay, I get that. But I would have you consider this morning why it is we work so hard to wear the mask we talked about last week and why it is we try so hard to find acceptance through the things we've talked about this morning. This is worthy of another sermon itself, but it is my belief that these questions lead us to an almost inescapable conclusion. That not only were we made with intention, but that we are a people trying to recover what has been twisted and lost in our sin and separation from God. We were not made to be separated from our Creator. And we are most complete the closer we are to the one who loves us best. One of the reasons that we've been working so hard to, to see in these, in these last two weeks in this chapter, to see how desperately sinful and separated we are from God is so that we can know just how desperately we need a rescuer. Because in the single greatest plot twist in the, in the narrative of human history, someone actually did come for us. God came to be man. Not to, not to judge us or condemn us, but to bear the eternal penalty of our sin against a holy and a perfect God. He came himself to bridge that chasm that lay between us and make a way for what was broken to be fixed. Every once in a while, my kids will come to me with a toy that has been broken somehow. And in their eyes, I can see the fear that dad won't be able to fix it and it'll stay broke forever. And most of the time, I can, I can fix the toy. But there are times when I can't. But I know a dad who can fix all the things that are broken. I know a dad who can restore the thing that would have been unrestorable. That dad is our father. And we are those kids longing to be fixed, longing for our Father to fix the thing that we know is broken. One of the most well-known verses in the Bible is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. 
It's the story of the gospel in one simple sentence. God loved the world and he gave Jesus to suffer and die because of the sin, because of the, the, the mess that we got ourselves into. And now those that would put their faith in Jesus as their rescuer, as the one that, that justifies them and makes them right, would live in the family of God for eternity. Exactly the way that God had always intended. So back to our question. How can we find acceptance in God? No. We find it in what Jesus has done for us. His glory becomes our glory. And our sin became his sin. And he died so that we might live. This is the gospel. And it is what can save us this morning. And so church, regardless of how you come, whether you come lost, whether you come broken, whether you come skeptical, or whether you come ready, Jesus' offer of rescue and acceptance stands for all who would call on his name to be saved. He's waiting to bridge the gap between who you are and where he is. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I thank you so much that in your goodness to us, you made a way. That in our sin and brokenness, we had no ability or hope of finding acceptance, justification, or any such thing. That because of your great love for us, you found us. Before we knew you, before we loved you, you became our hand, our rescuer, that pulled us from where we were. And today, in a world that is difficult, to say the least, your offer of rescue, of justification, of simple acceptance still stands. And God, I pray that no matter where we are today, whether we're far from you, whether we're close to you, whether we're somewhere in the middle, God, help us to know that you call us closer to yourself. Because, God, that is where we find our hope. And, God, that is where we find our acceptance. So help us today, we pray. In Jesus' good name. Amen.